straight out of Scotland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of St. Andrews. If you were listening to the last episode, you heard a conversation between myself and Dr. Thomas J. Ord. In the last episode, we discussed Tom's views on divine love, providence, and the problem of evil. Tom affirms something called God's uncontrolling love. This provocative view has caused quite the stir in contemporary theology. So in today's episode, Tom and I discuss some of the common objections to his view in a segment called Objection Time. This episode also has the ever-popular popcorn round. So if you have questions or topics that you would like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. So ready or not, here is Tom Ord considering objections and answering questions. Enjoy. Excuse me, could you tell me what time it is? Oh, that's right. It's objection time. Objection time! All right, Tom, welcome back to the show. As you know, uh, anyone who tries to develop new and creative theological proposals, they're inevitably going to face different objections to their view. And so I'm curious to hear what you think about some of the common objections that your work has faced. And so here's some common objections that I see to your work online and in in different theological literature. So I I would like us to take them one by one. And I want to start with a softball objection just to kind of get you going here. (laughs) Good. So, So here's the first objection that I often see to your view. So people will say something like this. They'll say, if God has to create a universe of some sort, then God has no freedom. So again, as I understand your view, this essential kenosis view, God has to create a universe. Like his love just necessitates that God create a universe of some sort. And so then the worry is, well, if God has to do something, then how is he free? Yeah, I do hear this one quite a bit. And and I understand why people voice it, because uh, in our own experience, uh, we have freedom to love or not. We can choose to love one, someone or we can choose to you know, treat them wrongly. Um, whereas I think in God's case, God must love because it's God's very nature. So that can sound an awful lot like, at least to some people, well, look, love has to be free. And if God's not free, then God can't be loving. So I like to distinguish between uh, two kinds of freedom. One is the freedom um, in terms of whether God will love, and the other is the freedom of how God will love. I don't think God is free in the question of whether God will love. I think God must love because that's God's nature, so God loves by necessity. But I do think that God freely chooses how to love in this ongoing moment-by-moment relationship with the world. Now, you and I choose freely on whether to love and how to love. God, however, is different from us. We might say God transcends us in the sense that God's nature is love. Now, usually when I explain that, people, they, they start to see that. They see, maybe they don't agree with it, but they can understand the rationale behind that. And then I say, well, now let's move this over to the, the issue of creating. What if God necessarily creates because it's God's very nature to create, 
But how God creates is freely chosen in ongoing relationship with the, the world and creation. So then you have the same kind of idea that God must do things because that's God's very nature, but the way in which God chooses to do them can be free because, in my view, the future is open and God is in ongoing relationship with others. Okay, so we've got a God who he's not free in the one respect of whether or not he will love, right? but he's free in, with regards to how he will love, express yes. that love. Right, and so a lot of, and so if a lot of traditional theologians want to complain about this, I mean, you could easily point out and say, "Look, you're really committed to the claim that God is perfectly good. God can't choose to be anything other than perfectly good. Right, but God can choose how He'll express that goodness. Yep. You know what's 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 the difference here between you and I? So you could point this out in lots of different areas of theology. I mean, so it so it seems like okay, so you've got some traction here, or at least some sort of strategy for how you could try to get out of this objection. Okay, so let's look at a, so let's look at a second objection here. So so another one that comes up a lot against your view is that your model of God somehow blurs the distinction between the creator and the creature. And so something about your model of God just reduces God to a creature. And I've even seen people not just against your view but against others who will say like you're just you're just like worshiping an idol, you know, <laughs> you've made God a creature. You're worshiping a creature. And like, how dare yeah. you, you know. Yeah, I hear that occasionally. I think it's misinformed, but Maybe to begin uh, answering this, I should sort of talk about two extremes. Okay. One extreme would be a claim that God is absolutely in no way whatsoever like any creature. And it's very hard to accept this. Some people will say that's their view, but if you talk to them long enough, they'll end up smuggling in this analogical language that they don't mean to. (laughs) Almost. Almost everybody is going to, at the end of the day, if they're even going to try to talk about God at all, it's really hard to be what I call an absolute apophaticist. That is, someone who thinks that there's absolutely no language whatsoever that can tell us anything true about God. There's no analogies at all. People may claim that, but in reality, if they continue to say they believe in God, they have a hard time living that. Right. So like an apophatist says that uh, the only claims I can make about God are negative claims. I have to make denials. So God's not bad. He's not wicked. He's not ignorant. But what you're pointing out is, well, you can't do that consistently because you're going to make some positive claim about God at some point. Exactly. Uh, So for instance, if I want to say God's not wicked, well, why do I want to say that? Well, maybe because God's not like a horrible person, he's just, he's just a jerk. You know, he's not very, he's not like that great, but he's not wicked. Well, that would make that, that the denial true. But like, I I doubt an apophaticist is really going to want to say that. They're going to be like, no, 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 God's perfectly good. You know, like, well, hang on. That's a positive claim. Exactly. Yeah. And plus, if you're someone like me who has a real fundamental commitment to scripture, there's all kinds of positive claims made about God in scripture. It's all over the place. And so you, you really have to erase tons of scripture if you're going to say, you know, that that doesn't tell us something true about God. And even if you're not a Christian, let's say you're just, uh, let's say you're a Muslim, or maybe you're not a committed to any religious tradition, but you still think God is a, re- a revealing kind of God, you're still going to come back to some kind of positive claims uh, sooner or later, I think. I would hope. I mean, I have seen some people want to say, well, God doesn't exist. He's beyond existence. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I don't know what that means. Exactly. I don't think they do either. Right. So I, I've seen some people try to be really consistent with this, but 
in most, in my experience, every theologian I've encountered, they'll start saying, we don't have a clue what God is like. And then I'll have to say, well, you told me God was infinite. You told me God was simple. You told me God was this, this, and this. Yeah. <laughs> you know too much about this unknowable God. Uh, right? Yeah, exactly. So it seems like, so for you, you're wanting to say like, right, like that's, we just got to get rid of that. So if you're building that into the creator-creature distinction, like, no, no, we have to say something positive about God. So first step of this is to say something positive about God. Yeah. And I suspect your experience is like mine, Ryan. My experience is that the people who are most insistent of this way of thinking are in the academy. And I suspect mm-hmm. that those people have gotten so fed up with the other extreme on the uh, spectrum that I'm about to talk about that they are swinging, I think, too far to this absolute apophatic extreme. The, okay. other, the other extreme is to say that God is really just exactly like us. So this would be ap, ab, absolute anthropomorphism. God is just another creature just like me. Now, I don't know really anybody who goes that route. Almost everybody wants to make some distinctions. Maybe God has been around longer than we have or exists everlastingly. And so God transcends us in that way. Or maybe God is omnipresent, whereas you and I are localized or, you know, whatever. There's all kinds of things people usually want to add on to say that, well, although God is like us in some respects, God is also different from us in other respects. So God isn't exactly like you and me. But then the criticism that you rightly point out in your question is, okay, when people hear me talking about this God who, uh, you know, is always creating, who is loving, who is uh, can't prevent evil single-handedly, that the language starts to sound like I'm really describing a particular being. And some of the qualities or characteristics sound like qualities and characteristics that you and I have, since you and I can't control everything either. Um, you know, is God just like us in that way? And so my my response usually is to just sort of kind of go attribute by attribute and work through the issues. In this sense, I think God is similar to us. In this sense, I think God is different. And my list is probably going to look different than other people's lists. I don't think there's any, you know, inerrant or any list that's been handed down from heaven exactly what the right ones are. Sure. (laughs) Some people try to tell me there are, but uh, I I haven't seen them yet. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, in some ways I can make claims that sound like God is transcendent in the ways that other people make claims that sound like God is too much like us. Like I've already mentioned one of them. I think God necessarily loves Lots of people want to think that God can freely choose whether to love or not. And that's like you and I. So that sounds like God is more like us. And the God I'm presenting is different from us because God loves necessarily. So there's some interesting turns here that people don't always see right off the bat. At the end of the day, I want to make some distinctions between God and us, but I also want to talk about some real similarities. Right. So the basic move is to say, look, there are clear distinctions between God and creatures on my model, and I can give you a nice list if you want it. Uh, and and for me, like, even though I, I'm not like sold on this idea of essential kenosis, I feel like there's a really obvious distinction between God and creatures on your model. And it seems it's this. God necessarily exists. Creatures do not necessarily exist. So, and God is the sole cause of the existence of all these other things. Yep, that's another and one. I, I, I kind of thought that 
part of what it means to be a creator is that you're the sole cause of everything else. <laughs> and part of what it means to be a creature is that you're caused to exist by that sole cause. So whatever other content you want to put into your doctrine of God, like Tom, I don't, I don't really care, but you've got that one. And that seems like a really obvious distinction to me between a creator and a creature. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah I've, I've never really understood this one, but it's just, it just comes up so much. So it has to be dealt with here. Yeah, I think so. I think maybe one of the reasons that this is just pure speculation on my part, but I think one of the reasons that it comes up, people sort of have this question for me, is that I begin with love as God's primary attribute and then start trying to talk about what that means, which usually involves me talking about God being in relationship talks mm -hmm. about God having intentions. I can even say God is personal. And once I start using that language, people are like, oh boy, this is really sh moving into the direction of kind of what I see in my world and what I think about myself. Is this guy just creating God in my own image? Whereas right. other people, they sort of start, start with this divine sovereignty, this God who is, you know, outside of time. And, and this kind of starting point, you're already thinking, well, this is different from my experience. I'm not sovereign. I'm not outside of time. Sure. And so um, I think my starting point kind of makes people a little bit worried. I'm just going to have a bigger version of me. Uh, but I have those real important distinctions that you point out. Yeah. And those, I think... I mean, to be honest, I can't think of a of a model of God that doesn't have some kind of distinction like this. Yeah. So I I really feel that this creator creature distinction is just sort of a card that people play. That yeah. all it does is just says I don't like your view, <laughs> uh, and I'm like that's that's fine, I guess you know, uh, but come up with a real objection. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So, okay, so I've got two more objections we're going to consider, and these are going to be a little bit more. Uh, well, I think they might be a little bit more difficult. So, so here's this next one. So, uh, Tom, on your model of God, God never began to create. God has always been creating a universe of some sort. And that might imply that God has been creating in the infinite past, in which case it looks like God has traversed an actual infinite series of moments or, you know, like series of moments of time. But lots of people think that it is impossible to traverse an actual infinite series of moments. And so if that's right, then your model of God has God doing something that's impossible. And earlier, you know, in the last episode, you mentioned you don't think God can do anything that's impossible. So what's, what's, what are you, you going to do here? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one that I'm continuing to work on and, and writing a book in which this plays a role. So let me uh, try, uh, try out or maybe um, relate where I'm at right now and uh, work through this. Um, I do believe that God everlastingly creates I don't believe, or I at least don't like the language that sometimes people use of talking about an infinite regress. So um, some people will say, look, an in, this God who didn't start ever, you know, ab have an absolute start of creating must have been always creating and that's infinite. And so, you know, we can't go a, a regress indefinitely. It makes no sense. So it's the impossibility, as you pointed out. Um, I think that objection starts with language that sort of uh, paints everyone into a corner. First off, I don't believe in regresses. I'm someone who thinks that time's flow always moves forward in one direction. So probably a better way to characterize my view, view is to say this is an everlasting succession of moments of God's creating. 
Secondly, this word infant, I think is like one of the, I think we ought to throw it out of our, our vocabulary. <laughs> I don't like the word infinite. I don't think it tells us anything positive. It's really just, a, I think, a word that an apophatic theologian ought to use because it's just saying not finite. It's not saying what it is. It's not saying the positive thing. And now, of course, what some people do is they jump into and they add things to the word or meanings to the word infinite that the word doesn't necessarily have to have. Uh, here I'm saying it makes better sense to me at least to say that there's this everlasting succession of events in which God creates in every single moment. And then I usually say to people, look, you're probably not going to stumble around thinking that God exists everlastingly. Um, even if you want to use the word infinite, you probably have in mind something like everlastingly. So my model is just taking that idea that you have no problem applying to God and saying, yeah, God exists everlastingly. And in every single moment, God is creating out of that which God created in the previous moment. But there was no beginning moment in this everlasting series. So it's not impossible. It is definitely a metaphysical assumption that I can't prove. But it's not impossible that God can uh, exist in an everlasting succession of events and in every moment in that series be creating out of that which God previously created. Right. Okay, so let me try to put the objection in a different way. Okay. So imagine that we were talking to God and I'm like, okay, so God, how many moments have occurred before this one? And, and so I'm like, I'm like, okay, so let's start with simple. Like, so God, tell me what, what happened before this. And God's like, well, there was that moment. And I'm like, okay, well, what happened before that moment? He's like, well, there's the moment before that. And I'm like, what happened before that moment? He's like, well, the moment before that. And we just keep going and going and going and going. And there's not going to be a stopping point to that question. I could always ask, well, what was before that? And what was before that? And it seems then I've got this sort of re regress of explanations and that, that doesn't seem great. And and one of the worries you, I guess that you would have is that, well, if, if you never get to this, like the stopping point, then how many moments has God actually, like have actually passed here? You might want to say then it does look like something like an actual infinite here. Uh, or maybe the very fact that God's, you keep, God's keep counting and counting and counting, that implies that there's an actual finite number of moments. So like, like, is it possible for God to keep counting backwards in this sort of way? Saying there's the moment before that, before that, before that, like, is that possible on your model? Yeah, so I want to reject the notion of counting backwards and having a set which mm -hmm. has no beginning or end. What I want to say is there's an everlasting succession. But I think you're right to push me to at least ask, in theory, could such a set exist? In other words, if we talk about in terms of mathematics, is there such a thing as an infinite set? And I think you, you may know the literature here better than I do, but my reading of it is that this is a really debated question. Is there, is there an actual thing to talk about here? But I guess my major appeal is to the theist who has a hard time stomaching what you call an infinite regress uh, that makes up a set, or even if you don't want to call it a set, at least an infinite mm -hmm. regress. My appeal to that theist is going to be, well, look, you're, you're, you're able to swallow, it seems, the idea that God had no beginning. You're not asking me to count how many moments of God's life there are and say that there's no beginning to that. So why come back 
to me and say, now that God is creating, you're making me somehow come up with this beginning or this number of moments of God's creating. If you think God can exist everlastingly and necessarily and we don't have to count the moments of God's life, then what metaphysical difference is there in saying that in every moment God has been creating? Right. I think that's a good question. And so that's why I think a lot of people will say something like this. They'll say, well, there's only one moment in the life of God. So if they think God's timeless. They're going to say it's just a timeless moment. So we don't have to worry about this problem at all. Yeah. Uh, or you could say something like William Lane Craig does where he's like, there's one moment where God exists without creation as a timeless moment. Yep. And then God exists with creation. Uh, and then it's, it's, and, and then there's ex- yeah. experiences succession after that. But then there's another view that someone like maybe like Richard Swinburne or Dean Zimmerman and the view that I'm really attracted to, which is to say, well, that moment prior to creation, it's a single moment. So there's no succession taking place, but it's not a timeless moment because I, you know, that that seems bizarre, especially since it's in a before and after relation with everything that comes after it. But it's a moment that doesn't begin, um, but it's a moment that does end when God creates. So it's, it's just a single moment. So there's no worry again of this infinite regress. So th- there might be some options here, I guess, to consider that that could answer the sort of question you're coming up with. But all that does is just kind of keeps the dialectic going a bit. It, it's, it's just kind of getting more clear on what some of the options are. Yeah, I, I think there are other options. I'm obviously not attracted to them because sure. I think, like, for instance, the one that you s- suggested you and Dean and, and Richard are attracted to, it leaves all kinds of questions about what it really means to be a living being who has one moment. You know, it's always, Mm -hmm. that's, you know, if we're talking about things that seem to be impossible. (laughs) Sure, this one feels impossible to you. (laughs) Yeah, well, maybe not impossible. At least it's hard to come up with any good analogies to that. Um, And so, yeah, there's going to be trade-offs, aren't there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course, of course. Okay, so here's one last objection, and this is one I mean, you've, you've heard before, I'm sure. So uh, a lot of people, they're curious how your model of God is compatible with miracles. And so on most conceptions of a miracle, God performs a miracle by directly, or maybe you might say unilaterally, intervening in the universe. But your model of God doesn't seem to allow for God to unilaterally intervene in the universe, because you've really emphasized this idea of uncontrolling love. So, so the objection is something like this, though, to just say, like, how can your model of God account for miracles like the resurrection of Jesus or, or like or, or parting of the Red Sea? Like there's some really big miracles in the Bible, and it just doesn't seem like your uncontrolling God could really do that. Yeah, that is an, uh, a question I get quite a bit. And uh, I like to begin by uh, singing a song from my youth, uh, mm. which uh, is, uh, I believe in miracles. <laughs> Uh, So, uh, yes, I do believe in miracles, and I do think this scheme, this model of God, uh, can account for miracles. It's important, I think, for people to understand that the model suggests, or not suggests, it it, um, says that God is active in the world at all times and places. So it's not uh, an inactive God. This is a God who is, we might say, is a necessary cause in every occurrence in the entire universe. And then it makes the claim that the miracles that we see in the world come about because God acted and there was some kind of appropriate creaturely creaturely response or in cases in which the creatures don't have responsive capabilities because they're inanimate or, you know, water or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, the conditions of creation were right for the miracle to occur. 
So it basically says miracles occur because God acts and creatures respond, whether or not they're complex or simpler creatures, or the conditions are right for those miracles to happen. That then means when we think about questions of, you know, Jesus' healing miracles, we can take really seriously all the claims about, you know, the people's faith playing a role in those miracles happening. It gets more difficult, though, when we start talking about parting the Red Sea or Jesus walking on water or Jesus calming the water. Then you have to bring, I think, in some other uh, uh, models. You can bring in some, you know, um, stuff in chaos theory and physics. At the end of the day, though, it's going to come back generally in terms of the metaphysics by saying, look, these things happen because God is present, God is active, and in the case of inanimate, uh, objects that seem miraculous, the conditions were right for that to happen. That's going to mean, of course, then that things don't happen sometimes that God wants to happen because the conditions aren't right. Or because, in the case of more animate objects, creatures didn't cooperate with God. And I, at least, find that a much more palatable way to account for <laughs> my own life experience. <laughs> mm. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've prayed for a lot of people to get healed, and they've not been healed. And sure. um, the usual explanations people have given me for why they're not healed don't make a lot of sense to me. In this particular scheme, we can then account for why healings do occur or miracles do occur and don't occur and not have to blame God for, you know, either punishing people or not being, you know, asleep on the job or whatever. We don't or have just to refusing ha to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So at least in my way of thinking, this provides a framework to affirm miracles without making God culpable for failing to do miracles at times we think miracles should have occurred. Right. Okay. So it seems like you've got certain things that lots of theologians are going to say. One of those being God sustains the universe in existence from moment to moment. Yep. And so that's a necessary condition for anything in the universe to happen. Yes. And so you've got that. And and then other times, uh, so like that's one condition for, for a miracle. And then another thing you said was that the conditions have to be right for God to act in a certain way. And yeah. so with cases of like creatures, you know, like, well, sometimes we're just, we're just really stubborn. We don't want to, we don't want to cooperate. And you can easily point out to passages where Jesus is like, I couldn't perform miracles in this town because, yep. well, those people just, they, just don't, they don't want to listen, you know? Yes. Yep. Right. So I can understand in those cases then. Um, but what about like something like, again, like the Red Sea case though? So the Red Sea case, the water, like I'm assuming the water doesn't have the ability to just go, God, you know, screw you. I don't want to, I don't want to cooperate here. Right, right. So help me understand a bit more what you mean by the right conditions yeah. uh, in, a, in an instance like this. So in the Red Sea case, you know, some of the Old Testament scholars talk about the Red Sea parting at other times in history. And mm. usually the uh, account is that there are strong winds that come off the mountainside and um, this sort of parting of the seas, the, the seas dry up. Now, this would be helpful in trying to account for this miracle, but then you'd have to add in some other interesting factors, like, you know, how is it that the Israelites come to the sea at the right moment for this to occur? Mm -hmm. and, and how is it that when Pharaoh's armies are going across the sea, they collapse and they drowned? You know, is this like just a great coincidence? Um, you know, what's going on here? So um, my scheme, you know, again, I'm not trying to say I've got all the answers here, but I sure. think it account for it by saying, look, God knows weather patterns 
even not with absolute certainty, but can predict even better than the weather girl on my channel at my town. Um, so God can see all the patterns that are going on in the world and see things that are happening. And also, I think God can communicate with people like you and me and Moses. Not that, uh, you know, we can still make mistakes in what God is revealing, but there's a capacity sure. to reveal. So God can see weather patterns and uh, speak to Moses and incline him to bring the people to the, you know, to the sea at the right time, get them through, etc. And you can begin to kind of work a way to think about these, what some biblical scholars, scholars call nature miracles, in ways that don't require God to be controlling or unilaterally determining, and yet uh, be able to use the capacities God has to understand not only the hearts of people and other creatures, but also uh, the way things work in the natural world. Okay, so I want to make sure I'm understanding this right. So one of the things God does is he gives the universe some law-like regularities. And part of being uncontrolling in his love is that he really want to, wants to respect the integrity of that law-like regularity. But he, because of that, he can predict, you know, kind of how some things are going to go, like the weather patterns. Right. And he can also communicate things to Moses and be like, look, the conditions are right. You know, if you get here at this, at this point, things are going to go a particular way, yeah. uh, like a parting of the sea. So is, is, is that kind of the idea here for what you mean by the right conditions? Yeah, I think that's one, at least in this particular case, that's in this one particular way to, case. Yeah. Yep. Okay, good. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. It's been fun. All right, this is the Popcorn Round, where guests don't know the questions ahead of time. The questions can be silly and the answers more ridiculous. Tom, you have to answer these questions as quickly as possible, faster than one can say pop pop. Are you ready? <laughs> I guess I'm ready. <laughs> okay. All right. Here we go. So first question. So you are a nature photographer. What is the most bizarre picture that you have ever taken on one of your hikes? Oh my. Uh, mm. It's got to be popcorn. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll say a picture of a bear's butt running away from me. Oh gosh. Okay. So you're just like on one of your hikes and you happen to see a, a bear was the bear running towards you or no like he was laying he was laying in the deep grass and i walked up on him and it scared both of us he ran away and i picked up i took my camera to my eye and took about four pictures of his butt running off in the distance <laughs> brilliant i love it <laughs> all right question number two would you rather be able to speak any language in the world or speak to animals so any Anim human language or speak to animals 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 okay okay why why you just don't like people anymore <laughs> well i think you know given technology we're able to do all kinds of translations and but no one's really i think got to communicate to animals at the level at least i would like to communicate to animals so right okay so yeah yeah I've, i don't need this other thing i don't need to be able to talk to any any human language because we're figuring that out as it is so, yeah, exactly I extra power. yeah okay. when i'm corresponding with my friends in germany and they send me a note in german i just click it on google you do translate and i'm ready to roll right okay so okay speak to animals there we go all right question number three as you know in the u.s and here in the uk there's a there's a debate over straws paper or plastic straws which do you prefer plastic i know that's plastic. bad but it's true it's what i prefer you just don't like having this the straw disintegrate in your mouth you know so you want a plastic straw you know the truth is i rarely use either one 
but if I'm going to use it, I just like the feel of the of the plastic. Mm, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Question four: Are you the kind of person who puts shrimp on your pancakes? No. Mm, good. Good. Because I was I was going to have to stop being friends with you. <laughs> All right. Question number five. So, Tom, you're a very prolific writer. What has been your favorite writing project? Mm. There have been many, but I'll, I'll pick one called, a little book called The Science of Love I wrote about 15 years ago. Mm. Okay, so remind me of that. I remember reading this. It was this, this isn't the one where you talked about just, uh, like, uh, just had collections of essays from other people. This was one of your own, right? Yeah, it was a little book that was written for a public audience. Actually, it was the first draft was written as a newspaper article in this little newspaper called Science and Theology News. And so I wrote this series of short chapters and published it as a short book. And I just like the, I don't know, I just like my prose in that book. Nice, nice, okay. All right, final question. Have you ever insisted that someone call you Dr. Love? <laughs> no, I've never even requested it. <laughs> All right. Well, at the next conference, I will insist that everybody call you Doctor Love. <laughs> oh my! You know that's it's actually a hard label to live up to. You like? Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm always checking myself to make sure I'm acting loving all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a big name to keep up to. Yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah. Uh, I love it. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. You know, it's been a lot of fun, Ryan. Thanks so much for inviting me. Of course. (laughs) And that ends the popcorn round. You done a pop pop. (laughs) Disgusting. You done a pop pop. And there you have it. Another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on God, Molinism, and so much more. 